Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. And today in segment one, we'll be discussing the murder of Casey Goodman by the Franklin County Sheriff's Department. Governor Mike DeWine's sweeping call for police reform and President Donald Trump's rush to execute inmates in the last days of his time in office. In segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring evidence-based practices and why they are so important to the criminal injustice system and particularly the idea of rehabilitation and supervision as components of that system. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and follow us on all of our social media channels. If there's a topic you want to get in on our deep dive, reach out in the comments or message us directly. We'll give you a shout out and send you a TLOBJ Yeti if we choose your question. Look to the Law Office of Brian Jones and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know to stay informed about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, another black man has been murdered by law enforcement when Jason Meade of the Franklin County Sheriff's Office shot and killed Casey Goodson, a 23-year-old Columbus native. Yes, I did. And this is just incredibly bad news. I am stunned that this continues to happen. And I know that you've got some really interesting details to share with everyone today. So if you could let us know what is alleged to have happened in this situation. Jason Meade is a Franklin County Sheriff's Office deputy on loan to the United States Marshals who were serving a warrant. They didn't find the individual that they were looking for. Now, the Franklin County Sheriff's Office claims that Casey Goodson was driving down the street, waving a firearm at law enforcement officers who were on the scene. Goodson's family denies he did anything like that. Casey Goodson was not the subject of the warrant in this case. He has no outstanding charges. He is a citizen who has exercised his right to own, possess, and carry a concealed firearm with a licensed permit to do so, which indicates to me that he has no prior criminal history. He is constitutionally entitled to have a weapon on his person. Now, according to the reports by Franklin County Sheriff's Office, Jason Meade shot Casey Goodson, quote unquote, in the torso which we can now interpret to mean in the back as he was entering his home, carrying submarine sandwiches for himself, his niece and his grandmother. It's important to note here that Jason Meade knew there was a child present when he opened fire and took Goodson's life. Oh my God, he knew? This is such a tragedy for the Goodson family. So. It's interesting that you said um, that the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation refused to take over the investigation of the shooting. Why is that? An officer-involved shooting would be investigated by the Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, Ohio's BCI. But for some reason, the Franklin County Sheriff's Office waited three days to notify BCI of the investigation and ask for assistance in the investigation. Now, because of this delay, 
BCI can't account for what happened during those three days. And the agency refused to handle the investigation as it is irreparably tainted. This is a serious indictment of the Franklin County Sheriff's Office and their behavior and attempts to cover up this murder. This is why the FBI has taken the unusual step of joining in the investigation with the Columbus Police Department. United States Attorney David DeVeers has announced that a civil rights investigation has been instigated because, according to him, it is warranted under these circumstances. Wow, that is a lot to unpack. So how is the state of Ohio reacting to the Casey Goodman incident? And Senator Sherrod Brown has called for a thorough investigation of the Franklin County Sheriff's Office's actions, both in the murder and in the aftermath in what is a, an apparent cover-up. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther has not directly responded to questions as to whether he trusts the Columbus Police Department to conduct a proper investigation, stating only that he wanted to ensure that there was a thorough, complete, and transparent investigation of this officer-involved shooting. Columbus Police claims that they have received threats to officers related to the incident, but there has been no verification of these threats, nor have there been any charges issued against any individuals for making threats. Shockingly, Meade was previously involved in an officer-involved shooting of a civilian in Pickaway County in 2018, but his file reveals no discipline or remedial training after that murder. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office kept a killer on its roster and farmed him out to federal law enforcement, likely without ever warning them of his happy trigger finger. This is a huge deal to most police officers statistically because most officers never fire a weapon at a civilian and officers who shoot and kill are even rarer. Yet the data shows that officers who have shot to kill previously are more likely to be involved in a deadly shooting in the future. This leads us directly into our second topic today of Governor DeWine's recently announced police reforms. Erica, did you see this in the news? Well, yeah, and I know we've been actually talking about this since this summer. So I'm really interested to hear what they are putting into place. Can you let us in on this? Governor DeWine has created a state board of law enforcement officials and members of the public to license police officers in the same way that teachers and lawyers are licensed. This is huge news, and it's so relevant to the circumstances that led to the murder of Casey Goodson. This is how you start to get bad apples out of the bunch early on in the process, rather than leaving them there to fester and infect the entire force. By no longer allowing police department conduct to be swept under the rug by internal investigations and instead giving the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation and other outside agencies the authority to work with and conduct these investigations, we can now see light shed where darkness previously reigned supreme. This is a need that should be playing out in the Goodson case right now. There is no reason that Governor DeWine can't step in and make sure that this kind of transparency applies in this particular circumstance. Governor DeWine has made it a priority to prohibit chokeholds unless there is a life or death situation involved. 
Now, I want to make sure that life or death situation is clearly defined by law. So there is no getting around and no wiggle room as to what is, in fact, a life or death situation and when the chokehold is permitted. In all honesty, I don't think a chokehold should ever be permitted. However, if we're going to allow it, the clear limitations on it must be made. Governor DeWine has created a statewide use of force standard that all departments across the state must follow and a statewide database to provide information about individual officers' use of force. Keeping bad apples from being passed around from department to department. You may remember the cop who murdered Tamir Rice had been previously fired by one department for incompetence, but came right back to join the Cleveland police. Reforms will now require police department recruits to have a high school diploma, not previously a requirement for law enforcement officers and pass a psychological evaluation. I would like to see this include a threat assessment for white nationalists and other Oath Keeper identification, uh, self-identification parameters. We want to try and root out the racists early on in the process. It's gonna require all Ohio State Patrol officers to have body cams, something that that department to this day does not have any of. They are 100% cruiser cams and their ability to cover up and manipulate the perspective of their interactions with citizens is second to none. Finally, it's going to boost training and continuing, continuing education hours and provide independent funding for that training. So it's no longer subject to the independent whims of the departments. Wow, I mean, it sounds like these reforms are aimed at more transparency. What will it take to actually get these implemented? I'm sure there's going to be some pushback on a few of those points. I'm, I'm sure there will with, with how conservative control uh, there is in the Ohio General Assembly. The proposal will go to lawmakers, um, hopefully to make it in the law um, through the Ohio Revised and Administrative Codes. You know, again, we've talked about it once. We've probably talked about it a dozen times, Erica. Elections are critical. We've got to have progressive individuals elected to the General Assembly to get these reforms passed. As we decide who's making decisions about your life and my life, as we move about our state, it's critically important that appropriate individuals make decisions on what the law is and the standards and the minimum practices for Ohio police. It's important to note that the Democrats in the Ohio General Assembly and the Black Caucus are working up their own versions of this reform, which will go even further than the governor's proposal. So we're gonna keep an eye on what actually gets into the legislature, what gets into and out of committee, and what comes out of the General Assembly and onto Governor DeWine's desk. We're gonna keep following this story throughout the process. Last but not least, Erica, did you see in the news this week that President Donald Trump has made a decision to fast track executions in the final days of his presidential term? I mean, it's, I don't know how many crazy things he's going to be doing before he leaves, but he's trying to fit all of these things into a month. But 
that being said, aren't these death penalties going through all the time? So a month and a half, which is plenty of time to do a lot of crazy things. But no, Erica, since the Supreme Court of the United States reinstated the death penalty in 1988, federal executions have actually been quite rare. In fact, the only other president to preside over an execution since that time was George W. Bush. Since 2003, there have been no federal executions whatsoever. Donald Trump is breaking a 130-year tradition of pausing all executions during the presidential transition. And he has executed a shocking 13 inmates since July 2020, with a scheduled five additional executions to go through before, pres before, before President-elect Joe Biden takes office. I think it's incredibly depraved for Donald Trump to push through these government-sanctioned homicides as the new administration and the American people by electing a new administration has been very clear about the fact that the death penalty is a relic of the past and should go the way of stone tools. It should be eliminated. I mean, that I agree with you. Weren't these inmates sentenced to death lawfully? They were. They were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death according to law. But Erica, just because something's illegal doesn't make it moral. Statistics show us that Black Americans are more likely to be convicted and more likely to be sentenced to death than any other demographic. And the death penalty system in the United States is incredibly racist. Many states have already rejected the death penalty as a concept in totality. And as our nation confronts its systemic racism, it feels especially cruel to push through these executions as a last minute gouge in the eye of minority families in our country. I agree with you. And I, I know that we've seen a lot of studies that will back that up, but aren't the victims and their families entitled to see the inmates put to death? Not necessarily, necessarily. And especially so if all appeals haven't been exhausted. Studies have shown that families of deceased victims receive absolutely no closure that they expect when they go in to witness the convicted person's execution. Keep in mind that because of long-standing moratoriums on executions, many of these inmates have been on death row for decades. There is no way to make a hurt person whole again. And in, in our system, we usually rely on money through civil lawsuits to address the emotional and, and mental wounds caused by violence. Victims are entitled to the prosecution of their attackers and, and to restitution for their financial harms, but they're not entitled to revenge and they're not entitled to any one particular result in terms of what happens if the perpetrator is convicted. There's no constitutional or statutory right to see a convicted person executed or even punished. Wow, I mean, well, thank you for clearing that up. And, and it, I too don't think that I would want to see somebody killed. Erica, I, I agree the tragedy of the application of the death penalty in the United States uh, continues to be a problem. However, as we consider what the criminal justice system may look like without a death penalty, 
Let's turn to segment two and an important area of criminal justice reform, the implementation of and reliance on evidence-based practices. So, yeah, I, I can't wait to hear about this because I know we have talked about the science over and over again since we've started this show. And I'd love to hear, you know, what does evidence-based practices mean in the context of the criminal justice system? Evidence-based practice is the idea that occupational practices ought to be based on scientific evidence or applying and translating research findings to the daily practice of decision-making. In the criminal justice system, we look at both practices and at evidence-based decision-making, which is the strategic and deliberate method of applying knowledge and research-supported ideas to the justice system and to the decisions that are made at the case, agency, and systemic level. Empirical knowledge is information received through the senses, particularly observation and the documentation of behavior, often through experimentation. Practices include things like probation terms that somebody has to follow, policies of various you know, jails and lockdown facilities, assessments that look at a person's level of risk for violence, um, risk of sexual violence, um, and just general risk of antisocial behavior, criminal, criminal behavior. And the decision-making process brings all of that together. So we take the scientific method, we propose a hypothesis, we form an experiment, we test it, we try to disprove the hypothesis, and then we do it again over and over to make sure that we're using the best means available rather than the shoot from the hip, base decisions off of your gut feeling mentality that has ruled the criminal justice system for decades centuries even. Well, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I think that the science is really important. So when we look at this, I, there's a lot of different areas of the law. And I would assume that some of these areas would benefit from this more than others. So maybe you can tell us which areas will benefit from the evidence-based system that you're talking about. Well, Erica, every single area of the criminal injustice system can benefit from evidence-based practice. If we look at the, the most foundational level, law enforcement officers should be using evidence-based practices to shape the training that, they, that officers receive to everything from you know, the beat cops to specialized officers like detectives and those who investigate you know, drugs and, and sex crimes. Court administration can use evidence-based practices as a way of creating new and specialized recovery dockets for things like um, alcoholism, drug addiction, and theft, as well as putting accommodations in for people who, who need such accommodations, like therapy dogs for child or victim testimony, and you know, various forms of alternative um, treatment and options for people who get involved in the criminal justice system. And that kind of bleeds right into the probation department using evidence-based practices to form the terms of probation that are imposed on a convicted person. 
you know, using the appropriate level of care and not just saying, well, you were convicted of a crime. So therefore we're going to impose drug testing and alcohol testing, and you got to come in and you got to piss every Thursday and blah, 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 blah. Well, if your crime is habitually text messaging an ex-girlfriend and it has nothing to do with drug or alcohol use, why should you put that individual's job at risk by forcing them to come in? That's not evidence-based practice. We have drug addicts come in and drug test. We have alcoholics come in and, and test for alcohol abuse. So imposing the right kind of treatment, anger management, restitution, drug testing, and job training for individuals who are convicted of crimes. And then as a broader level to that sentencing, the use of risk assessment tools, sex offender risk assessments, um, violence risk, risk assessments, and other mental health evaluations to make sure that offenders are given the appropriate level of treatment, the appropriate level of supervision, and that their sentences are tailored to make sure that the guardrails are in place to keep society safe rather than randomly imposing punishment and exacting revenge on human beings for their mental health disorders. So how will the criminal defense attorneys use the evidence-based practices? So about eight years ago, Erica, my firm coined the phrase holistic criminal defense. Long before that term holistic became, you know, the buzzword of, uh, of the new age, we were looking at individuals, not just as a case file and an, and a, and an exercise in the practice of law in motions and examinations of witnesses, but also as a human being and somebody that we could work with to try and help them become a better person, whether they were whether they were responsible for what they were accused of or whether they were being falsely accused. Everybody can use some self-improvement. And so we wanted to make sure that we looked at every single one of our clients and we still do this day. We take each individual client and we craft a plan to help them in, in all aspects of their life. In criminal practitioners can benefit from using this kind of knowledge-informed, scientific method-following practice to addressing the problems that our clients experience. The research, the studies, and the interpretation of, of all of that information from you know, forensic sciences to uh, all the evaluations that an individual can get, that's how evidence-based practice works for a criminal defense practitioner. Evidence-based practices help defense attorneys secure the right level of treatment and the right level of probation for convicted clients, and especially those that need mental health, sex offender, or drug and alcohol addiction treatment. One example that I can give you is, is an accused who's looking for an attorney to walk them through a plea um, because they want help for the behavior that led them to commit the crime at issue. Now, a quality criminal defense attorney is going to use evidence-based practices to identify the best resources and treatment options available to that person to make sure that rehabilitation coordinates with the assessments and that there are medical experts, there are requests, reviews, and research supporting the, uh, the, 
the treatment processes that the accused is going to go through. Um, we make sure we identify relevant research studies that support the type of treatment that the individual is going through over punishment and making sure that we research sentences, so evidence-based practice, we research and look at other sentences for the similar crime and the appeals of those charges and make sure that, that we tell the judge based on the evidence, what sentence other courts are imposing and how courts are addressing these sorts of cases um, in the modern era. Finally, we make sure that we bring in the experts, we bring in the witnesses to testify at a sentencing hearing um, and present that evidence in a really clear and understandable format for the judge so that the, the accused receives a sentence that's influenced by the attorney's, um, the, the attorney's use of the evidence-based practice um, and, and make sure that you know, when we're talking about sentencing, we're really talking about two primary factors as it's set forth by the Ohio General Assembly, right? We're talking about protecting the public from future crime and punishing the offender. So if we can take away factor one, if we can say, judge, factor one isn't an issue. You don't have to lock our client up in order to protect the public from our client because we've gotten him treatment or uh, we've, we've taken these remedial measures to make sure that, that this behavior isn't going to happen again in the future. Then the judge has to really look at the sentence and say, am, am I the kind of judge that wants to exact revenge out of another human being? And if they do, there's really nothing we can do to stop that. But most human beings don't like to be that person. Most human beings aren't that cold hearted. And exacting revenge is really not the purpose of our criminal justice system. We've abandoned that uh, centuries ago. So you know, judges can, can take that opportunity and, and act in that backward looking way, or they can take the opportunity and, and take a forward looking approach at each individual case. And so we wanna make sure that we use these evidence-based practices. We wanna get evidence and, so, and, and show how it applies to our client's case to make sure that we uh, get them the best sentence possible in those situations. I mean, and that makes sense. And, you know, I'd love to, you know, let the public know that's, that's watching this video right now that like, I've been working with you for a long time. And I know that you and your staff are just phenomenal at breaking through and finding the best techniques to help get great outcomes for your clients and making sure that you're fighting for what's right, uh, for what's right for everybody. And so it's the criminal injustice system is one of the phrases that I love that you have coined. And, uh, you know, I think that it's relevant. So if people are having issues and they have questions on any of the topics that we cover week after week after week, please give Brian Jones and the people in his law firm a call because you won't be sorry. They will give you a fair assessment of what's going on in your case. I, I appreciate you saying that, Erica. And, and, you know, they can even, you know, put their questions and comments down in the questions in the comments down below. You know, these are, a lot of these things are stuff that we can, we can answer real quick. We can give you some guidance. Um, you don't have to book a consultation if you don't have a case pending. You know, feel free to ask us these questions and give us topics that we can address in a future podcast. I guarantee you, if you have this question, somebody else out there does too. 
So help a brother out and uh, make sure you ask your questions down below. I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this show today. And Erica, thank you for joining me and moving this discussion forward. In order to become more informed about officer-involved shootings, police and government accountability, evidence-based practices, and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense or on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at TLOBJ. You can find everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system at all of these sources and using the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a deep dive into the current state of expungements and record sealing in convictions in the state of Ohio. Now, Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do, kid. And to all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.